This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Let's give this guy a hand again. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Miss Tracy, for leading the next generation of worshipers for us. That was awesome. Tough act to follow, too, right? <laughs> if you want to uh, engage the scripture with us this morning, it's in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn to your devices and to your Bible for Luke 19, let me give you a little background of Palm Sunday, uh, a little historical background, if you will. Um, as we pause to remember what uh, we call the triumphal entry. As Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem, we now know it as Palm Sunday. A little of the background on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus and his followers was traveling through Bethany, and they, um, if you remember, this was the location where Mary and Martha lived, and Lazarus, who uh, Jesus raised from the dead. And it's where Jesus uh, would spend his last week here on earth. The events leading up to the final week take up to close to 40% of the four Gospels. For example, Mark devotes about a third of his Gospel to the Passion Week. Um, Matthew's Gospel devotes eight chapters to cover the last eight days of Christ on earth. And up to this point throughout the, the four Gospels, whoever Christ healed, he would ask them not to tell anybody yet, since it was not yet time to release his full purpose and meaning and identity. But by the end of Matthew, around chapter 20, Jesus heals two blind men. And at that point, he doesn't warn them about doing it. So they go and start to tell others. Because at that point, the hour has come to, uh, for Jesus to enter the city, knowing full well what was ahead of him because of the Father's plan for eternity through his only Son, Jesus Christ. Many people would have gathered in Jerusalem during this time in A.D. 30. Historians believe that uh, it was probably a city of about 25 to 50,000 people roughly. But on big festival days, on Passover days, the city could swell to almost 200,000 people. Many would have no place to stay, but they traveled on a pilgrimage there, and they they would arrive up to a week in advance, make preparations for the feast and so forth. As you know, most of you know probably, the Passover celebrates the nation's deliverance out of Egypt. And now they are anticipating this messianic deliverance from the oppression of the Romans. By Jesus following through with the Father's plans, he fulfilled prophecies from 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9 and 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Micah chapter 5. The crowd was right. He was a king, but not the one that many of them thought he was going to be. Jesus had earlier predicted his death, but most did not understand what he was saying. Before Jesus came into the city, remember uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and worshiping, anointing his head and his feet with expensive perfume and wiping it with her hair. This was a sign of humility, a sign of total commitment. Some commentators estimate the value of the perfume was like a whole year's wages. 
That's why Judas kind of came in there and scorned over the loss of potential income. He could have sold that and given it to the poor, he said. But Jesus defended her. In John's uh, Gospel, chapter 12, he said, Leave her alone. <laughs> she has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So this was a hint, again, of coming death and burial. But not many people saw that. In Mark's account of Jesus' entry to the city, and later in Luke's account, we see Jesus cursing a fig tree. Mark describes that it was not the season for figs to be produced yet, but the tree had leaves indicating that fruit was coming. But Jesus found no fruit, so he cursed it to make a point. His disciples the next day noticed the fig leaves had withered and dried up. You see, the temple and the Sanhedrin had become much like that fig tree. They appeared on the outside to have leaves. They appeared to have great spirituality and devotion to God, but they proved to be hypocrites, not bearing any fruit. Even Gentiles were restricted on the outside court, so the poor were exploited by money changers and merchants. All that was going on around the temple. The cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree by Jesus are all making the same point. The religious life and the worship of God's people seem to have leaves on the outside, but on the inside, no real fruit. They were called out for spiritually dead worship. And Jesus ended his teaching by saying, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will never pass away. All four of the New Testament Gospels recounts the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But when we look at Luke's account this morning, we see a focus on Jesus' deep love for Jerusalem. And as you read on at the end of that uh, chapter of Luke, uh, the following chapters, there's a huge emphasis on eschatology also, the end times. So let's look at Luke 19, beginning with verse uh, 29. And we're going to go all the way up to 48, so it's going to go a little bit beyond the traditional triumphal entry part. As he appeared, Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which one has never sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it, because all the people were captivated by what they heard. First of all, I want us to look this morning to the fact that a king was expected. The people were anticipating the king. Jesus and his followers left Bethany early Sunday morning to travel to the city. He sent two disciples to get this donkey colt. And he gave very specific instructions how to do this. And the reason that so much detail is in this account is because as the way Jesus entered the city, it fulfilled Zechariah 9.9, which reads this way. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, ancient kings typically rode in the towns on some majestic war horse, but Jesus did not come to conquer by force or as a militant warrior. He came to offer peace. Israel longed for a Messiah, one that would remove them from the bondage and the control of the Roman Empire. Jesus did not enter the city in some royal fashion. Instead, he entered in meekness and loneliness. And he came in humility with simplicity. People praised him, but they didn't all recognize him as the Messiah King. They were singing and shouting, Hosannas! That's coming out of Psalm 118 as a backdrop, if you will, to Jesus' entry. This psalm is the last of what, they, what is known as the Egyptian Hallelujah Psalm. It was part of the liturgy during the Festival of Tabernacles and Passover in the spring. Faithful pilgrims would sing these psalms on the way to Jerusalem to bring their sacrificial lambs for their sin. Some writers speculate, and it's mere speculation, that Jesus and his disciples would have probably sung this psalm at their last meal together. Prior to the exile from Babylon, residents of the holy city would recite Psalm 118 as kings would march towards its temple. Palm branches would be waved on these type of occasions to symbolize both victory in the Greco-Roman world and to bring nationalistic hope for deliverance for Israel from the oppression of Rome. Ancient Romans would spread out fine garments as a way of welcoming and celebrating their gods, much like we would say roll out the red carpet. But I really believe the garments cast before Jesus on this special day were the wraps of the poor and the working class. So I ask the question, why would a king ride into a city on a donkey, the lowest of the animals? It would be kind of like the president or a governor or something in our day and time, like entering into Westminster on a bicycle or a moped or something like that, right? This donkey 
rather than a horse is what Jesus rode on, symbolizing humility and gentleness. And the fact that it was one on which no person had previously ridden spoke also to purity. And it also aligned with prophecy. Zechariah, Isaiah, and even the patriarch Jacob back in Genesis 49 prophesied that upon such a beast as a donkey, Israel's awaited salvation and king would one day enter Jerusalem. Cries of Hosanna filled the air. That word Hosanna is a Greek transliteration of two Hebrew words. It's a dual meaning there in Psalm 118. And in that Psalm verse 25, it's translated to our language as Lord save us. In the very next verse, it's a word of praise that says the Lord is blessed. So they're combining those together. One can easily imagine different individuals lining up the parade route, if you will, shouting Hosanna, but with different meanings in mind. Of course, Jesus was not greeted by joyful priests and religious leaders when he finally arrived at the temple. Many were already plotting how to kill Jesus. What happens next is very revealing and telling. You see, Jesus was not concerned about the priest and religious leaders. I think we're going to do a switch here. Hang on one second. I thought I was... Now I don't have to shout. Thank you. Do I have to start over? <laughs> Just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I might have to. I don't know. Boy, you guys are like, ooh, I don't think so. <laughs> All right. So, uh, this is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, so Jesus was not concerned about the priest. Bear with me. We'll get this taken care of soon. Casey, you can't be fast enough. Get up these steps. He was focused on enemies. Far greater. Far greater. Far greater. It's not just my head, right? It's not just my head. Not I mean, I hear voices from time to time, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> All right. I know we got it under control. Um, he, was, uh, he was focused on enemies far greater and far more powerful. He came to defeat sin and death. And his victory takes a form that the Jews never anticipated. The crowd was cheering for the king of Israel. But their desire for a king and the king's actual purpose were worlds apart. See, many understood he was a king, but they underestimated his kingship. It wasn't just for Israel that he came. It wasn't just for the Jews. He came for all nations. See, Jesus didn't come with soldiers. He wasn't riding this war horse but instead a young donkey. He didn't come to destroy other nations, but rather to bring peace to the nations. God's plan has always been for all the nations, not just Israel. Israel was waiting for this political savior, but God sent his son for all people to have the chance for saving faith. See, this is what fuels local and global missions for us today. 
We don't go on a mission trip because it's cool to go to a different culture. We don't take up special offerings in the Lottie Moon Christmas or Annie Armstrong Easter offerings to missionaries or send uh, support money to global partners in Haiti without a purpose. Local and global missions should be like an adjective that describes any believer's life because every day we are called to be missional, to take the gospel to all the nations. And whatever we do in other countries should be an overflow of what we model and practice here at home, right? That's why we go to Boston Inn. That's why we go to the jails now that they're opening up. That's why, even though it was canceled because of bad weather yesterday, we were planning to serve in East Baltimore with several other churches on serve day. Why should we expect our global missionaries and pastors to be faithful to the mission if we aren't faithful in our own communities and cities here at home? See, Jesus' victory over sin and death was not political, and neither is our eternal hope. Jesus lived to die. Isaiah 52 and 53 prophesied about this. They said there would be one who would come to bring salvation. And they described him as a servant and one who would suffer immensely. Jesus fulfilled all of this. Jesus' victory would cost his earthly life on a cross. And this king laid down his life for you and me so we could be rescued because we're all broken. We're all in need of a Savior. This king laid down his life for us. He took the punishment of my sin and your sin that we deserve to pay so that we may have a life that we don't deserve. You see, Jesus was not on a ballot. No one voted him king of kings. Our hope is not in politicians or leaders in D.C. Our hope is sitting on his throne in heaven, and one day he promised he will return. But he's not going to return on a donkey when he comes again. The world cannot give us the peace that is described in Luke 19.38 because peace is a person. Jesus Christ is the King of Peace. The city of Jerusalem that Jesus entered actually means foundation of peace. Think about this. And riding on a donkey was a symbol of arriving to a city in peace. And if you reflect back even to the Christmas story out of Luke 2.14, we read the angels cried, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people that He favors. Let's get our head around this a little bit. Here is the King of Peace entering the city of peace on an animal of peace. So here's my, one of my second points, I guess, today. We will never truly have peace until Jesus becomes our peace. Peace with God. Peace with our fellow man. And peace within. It's not possible without Jesus Christ. While the crowds cheered and waved palm branches, the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees grew angry over all the attention that Jesus was getting. And in our text this morning, verses 39 and 40 show us that they demanded that Jesus quiet down the crowd. And I love how he responded. He responded once again with Old Testament Scripture, Habakkuk 2.11. He says, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. You cannot stop true worship. 
No one saw the entry into the city as the pathway to the cross of crucifixion. Another point for us this morning is this, the king of peace has compassion. Verse 41 says that he approached the city he loves. It shows how his, on a human side of Christ, his heart melted and, and it caused him to weep over the condition of the people because he knew what was coming. He knew the destruction. He knew the death that was coming. The Mount of Olives is east of the Temple Mount, and, and if you've ever been on a Holy Land tour or seen pictures or videos from it, it's kind of like a panoramic view of Jerusalem. It's an awesome sight, and we believe that's where the Savior, our King, showed this kind of compassion for the people. Said Jesus wept and shed tears for the lost. Let me ask you, church, when was the last time you shed a tear over a lost person? When was the last time maybe you found a high spot and looked over our city of Westminster or Baltimore and cried over the lost souls all around us? When I fly in and out of Haiti, down through the years, I always like to look out the, the window of the plane and see these beautiful mountains as we approach Haiti and, and when we're flying home and see all the little huts and the villages and so forth. It brings tears. Because you see the poverty, you see the, the voodoo evil, you see the lostness of those who don't know Christ yet. It's overwhelming sometimes. But Jesus is the only answer to all of that. And only the gospel can shed the light into that kind of darkness and evil. So as Jesus looked ahead, he wept. He saw this terrible judgment coming to the nation, the city, and the temple. In verse 42, Jesus says, If you knew this day would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Can you imagine, again, what the human side of Jesus, what it was like for him, what he was going through at this moment, knowing full well that once he entered the city, he would not come out of that city alive. To know that even on this Palm Day, Palm Sunday day, the crowd was cheering. He could have got all caught up in that. But he couldn't embrace those cheers because he knew what was going on behind the scenes to arrest him and beat him and kill him. To know that even though the people were warned and told that this would happen, many chose not to believe or follow. And to follow the Father's will and perfect plan, Jesus would feel the weight of my sin and yours and take that all on his shoulders and die in our place, the perfect lamb, the sacrifice that paid it all. And he did it humbly, willingly, and he did it to completion. And in verse 45 of our text, Luke describes Jesus clearing the temple. Instead of a house of prayer, he said it has become a den of thieves. Many were captivated by Jesus' teaching in the temple while others were plotting to kill him. Even uh, the Jewish historian Josephus once described the Passover just a few years later in A.D. 66, just to give you an idea of the kind of corruption that was going on around the temple. He said there might have been as many as 225 lambs bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple court. And because it had to be the perfect sacrifice, there was this rigorous inspection to pass. 
and many people just kind of gave in to that and let let the priest choose one for them, or sometimes they were forced to buy an approved animal by the priest. Markups and profit on these sales were sometimes as high as 16 times the normal amount. Think about that. Money changers, on top of that, would exchange foreign currency for Jewish currency at an outrageous exchange rate. Now do you see why Jesus came in and cleared the temple? And historically, we now know in AD 70, the Romans would come, and after a siege of over 140 days, 600,000 Jews would be killed, and thousands more would be taken captive as the temple and the city was destroyed. Why did all this happen? Because the people did not know that God had visited them. Church, how many times have, in our day, have we seen evidence of Jesus and ignored it? How many times does Jesus have to warn us, yet we're too busy to pay attention? How many times has Jesus spoken the gospel to you through others, maybe even through tragedies, or through what you may have felt was a circumstance, yet we did not heed the calling? Perhaps today there's someone here that feels a tugging on their heart to let Christ lead in your life and be your Savior today. Will you surrender today? Or will you continue to hide in the crown, waving the palms like the bystanders in Jerusalem? Today could be your day of salvation. You see, our cities are full today of people trying to find peace using any method or practice or resource that we can find. Many choose to leave Jesus out of the solution and they try all these other things. And they remain empty and stressed to the max, full of anxiety, full of fear. We've all done enough to know this, that any substitute that this world offers for real peace is only temporary. It will never satisfy. It will never sustain you. Only Jesus can do that. So I ask the worship team to start making their way back up with some concluding thoughts here. My last point is this. Our King has come, but our King has promised He will come again. What a contrast we can see from when He came to Jerusalem and when He will come back again. See, in the first coming, He came to die. The second coming, He will come to reign. In the first coming, He came on a small donkey. Revelation says He will come again on a horse. He came as a humble servant. He will come again as an exalted king. He came to save the first time. He will come again to judge. He came in love. He will come again in wrath. He came with 11 or 12 disciples and followers. He will come again with an army of angels. He was given while here on earth a crown of thorns he will receive a crown of royalty. And he came as a suffering servant. He will come again as King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he came the first time, only a few may have bowed down and worshipped him. But when he comes again, Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
So my gospel response for us this morning, two very simple things. First of all, if you do not know Jesus Christ, today Jesus may enter your life. He doesn't need to enter the city again. He's already done that. But he loves you enough that he wants to enter your life. He wants a relationship with you today. Secondly, is Jesus your source of peace? He loves you. He absolutely loves you. He gave His life for you so that you may have eternal life and peace. And if you want that peace that I'm describing this morning, please come over and see me as we worship with this last song. See Pastor Matt, see Pastor Bill. Grab someone that's sitting beside you and say, what's this peace? Who's this Jesus? How do I do this? We would love to have that conversation with you. So let's pray together and worship our King. Father, we are grateful for the accurate accounts of the Gospels that record this momentous time in history that we call Palm Sunday. We thank You for Your Son's sacrifice for us, God. That He was willing to enter the city. That He was obedient to Your plan to complete the plan. And today, Father, I ask that You would draw someone near to You and that You would enter into their life. Father, breathe life into the hearts of those that was once cold to You. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.
church. Uh, well, uh, we pray you have a great week, and remember you're sent in the midst of darkness to light it up. We'll see y'all Friday for our uh, Good Friday service at 6 o'clock p.m. We'll see y'all later. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us, and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.